Well, if you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 8. And today I want us to focus on the most important question uh, that has ever been asked. Uh, this is a question that defines us. It's a question that separates us. The question is the simple question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Uh, th th this question defines our, our faith. Uh, there are a lot of different faiths that people hold to, uh, and the separation between one faith and another uh, just comes down to the answer to the question, who is Jesus? Uh, for, for instance, the difference between Christianity and Islam. We have a, we have a lot of, uh, of new residents here in Nacogdoches uh, that, are, that are Muslims, and they're great neighbors, and they're great friends, but there's a difference between Christianity and Islam, and it comes down to the answer to the question, who is Jesus? Uh, what's the difference between Christianity and Judaism? Well, it's, it's that question, who is Jesus? The, the, the difference between Christianity and Jehovah's Witnesses or Christianity and Mormons or Christianity and New Age, all of those faiths recognize Jesus, but they answer very differently the question, who is Jesus? That is the question that matters. And it, it doesn't just separate between faiths, but it, it even separates uh, the genuine Christians from some who may not be genuine. What I mean is, what's the difference between someone who is an authentic Christian and someone who is just a cultural Christian? You know what I mean by a cultural Christian? Somebody who just sort of fits in uh, to the Bible belt morality. They just sort of live like everybody else. That would be a cultural Christian. What's the difference? Well, it, it comes down to what you would say as an individual what your lips and your life would say to the question, who is Jesus? What's the difference between an authentic Christian and a nominal Christian? You know what that is? That's someone who has the title of Christian. They would refer to themselves as a Christian, but there's, real, there's no real evidence in their life. Well, what's the difference? Who is Jesus? The personal answer to the question, who is Jesus? What's the difference between an authentic Christian and a temporal Christian or a temporary Christian? You know, some people are just Christians when there's a problem, right? They're just Christians when they get caught or they're just Christians when uh, the doctor gives them a bad report or they're just Christians when they run out of money. When they're in trouble, they're Christians. But the rest of the time, let life go well and, and they don't have any, uh, any focus on Christ at all. So what's the difference between an authentic Christian and a temporal Christian? Well, it's the personal answer to the question, who is Jesus? So people in both of those categories, all of those categories, would say perhaps that Jesus uh, is divine, but when it comes right down to who is Jesus for you, there are different answers, and those different answers define us and separate us. I want to take some time this morning and just talk to you about the question and the answer for the question, who is Jesus? So Jesus, in, in his ministry, uh, took his 12 disciples and he got them together and he asked them point blank this question. And the story that sort of surrounds this, it's a pretty short scripture story, but the story that surrounds this is full of suspense and there's a surprise and even a plot twist in the end. And so let's, let's look at it together. I'll read it to you. It says in Mark chapter 8, verse 27, Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? 
So Jesus uh, had spent most of his ministry, as we talked about last week, around the Sea of Galilee, either on or around the Sea of Galilee, most of the gospel accounts happened right there. And so he was in the city of Bethsaida, and we were trying to give you a little geographic reference last week. We said the Sea of Galilee is the size and shape of the loop around Nacogdoches. And so if you're familiar with that, you sort of got the Sea of Galilee in your mind. And I told you when we talk about a place on the sea, I'll tell you where it is on the loop. And so the city of Bethsaida would be about Nacogdoches High School on the loop. So sort of the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee. They were there, Jesus and his disciples. They went 25 miles due north to Caesarea Philippi. Uh, which uh, was, a, was a place of pagan worship. I'll perhaps tell you why they went there if we have time at the end of the message. But while they're there, Jesus asked this question of the disciples, who do people say that I am? He wants to know. People are talking about me. What do people say? What does the community say? Who is Jesus? And so the disciples answered in the next verse. Says they, they answered, some say John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, uh, still others, one of the prophets, and so those are uh, religious people that they knew about that had lived and died. And so the consensus was in the community that Jesus was one of those old men who had died and somehow either been resurrected or reincarnated and they were back and nobody knew exactly who he was, but he was the old dead religious guy and now he's back. Verse 29, but you, Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Jesus gets real personal. In fact, here in my translation, it has the word you twice, and that reflects what it says in the original. Jesus had already asked, what do other people, what do they say about me? But now he just looks the disciples in the eye and he says, you, who do you say I am? And he's looking for a personal answer. It says at the end of verse 29, Peter answered. Peter, one of the disciples, sort of the leader of the disciples, Peter answered, you are the Messiah. That meant you are the Christ. You are uh, the Lord. You are God, the creator, the one that we are to follow. You are the Messiah. And Peter spoke for the disciples and he got it right. And then the next verse is sort of an odd verse that we, we generally skip over, but I'm going to show you its importance today uh, in a moment or two. It says, and he, Jesus, strictly warned them to tell no one about him. He said, don't tell anybody, but you're right. But then it goes on. There's a little bit more to the story. It says, then he, Jesus, began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed and rise after three days. So Jesus really characterizes his ministry. He says, I've come to suffer, to die, and to be resurrected. That's, that's the whole point of Jesus' uh, ministry. He goes on in verse 32. He spoke openly about this. But Peter, now listen to this, because this is a plot twist. Peter, who had just said, by the way, that Jesus was the Christ, was the Messiah, it says, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Peter didn't like that Jesus said that he was going to suffer and die. Peter was not interested in that. And so Peter pulls him aside and says, Jesus, don't say that. And he rebukes Jesus. That's a pretty strong thing. Now, when I read this, I thought, well, that's shocking to me. That's odd to me. And it's odd because Peter, just one breath before, Peter had said, Jesus, you're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the King. And now 
just, just a minute later, less than a minute later perhaps, he is saying, Jesus, you're wrong. Quit talking like that. How could a person say that Jesus was the Messiah in one breath and then be against him in the other breath? And when I was trying to figure that out, I'll tell you the Lord reminded me that this is often true of me. Because I'll come to church on Sunday and I will sing about the greatness of Jesus. I'll sing Jesus is, is better, like we sang this morning. I, I'll talk about the greatness of Jesus. And then during the week, when I face temptation, sometimes I say the opposite. You know, I say Jesus is Lord on Sunday, but sometimes during the week I say I am Lord. I'll say it's all about following Jesus on Sunday, and Jesus is better. But, but then on Tuesday, sometimes I'm thinking my way is better. And so as, uh, as shocking as it as it is to see that Peter went from saying Jesus is the Messiah to I rebuke you, Jesus, I recognize that I do the same thing. And I need to be shocked by what Peter did, but also ought to be shocked by the way that I do it. Is Jesus Lord or is he not Lord? But, but what's interesting is not just that Peter, what Peter said, but then how Jesus responded. This surprised me as well. It says, but turning around and looking at his disciples, he, Jesus, rebuked Peter. So Peter rebuked Jesus, now Jesus rebukes Peter. But listen to how Jesus said it. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Now you got to understand who Peter is. He's one of the 12 disciples. That makes you pretty, you know, pretty high up on the ladder, right? And he is like the number one disciple. He's like at the top of the 12. And so here is Peter, but Peter, Jesus says, is being used of Satan to try to derail uh, the, the ministry goals of Jesus. Peter is, is becoming a stumbling block to the ministry. And, and, and that's surprising. But, but the lesson I learned is that if Peter could be used of Satan to try to derail the ministry, then I could be used of Satan. And you could be used of Satan to derail the work of God. And I need to be careful that I don't, I'm not guilty of that. You need to be careful that you're not guilty of that as well. And so here's the story. Jesus asks the question generally, then specifically, and then Jesus talks about his ministry and they have this little confrontation between Jesus and Peter. I want to look back at these verses for a few minutes and I want to try to say something about who is Jesus from three different perspectives. I want us to first of all answer the question, who does the world say Jesus is? I mean, well, what is the community saying? What is the world saying about Jesus? Because Jesus asked that question. So who does the world say Jesus is? And then we're going to see who does Jesus say Jesus is? Because Jesus says something about himself here. And then we'll finally see who do you say Jesus is? So we're going to try to ID Jesus by looking at it from those different perspectives. Let's start with the first one. Who does the world say Jesus is? Now, when, when Jesus asked that question, who do people say that I am? He, he heard this, this answer that involved maybe he's Elijah, which was an Old Testament prophet, or John the Baptist, who was a New Testament religious leader, but sort of served as a prophet, the forerunner of Jesus. Some say you're other prophets. They were saying of Jesus that we don't know exactly who he is. This is what the community was saying. We don't know exactly who he is, but we do know a few things. He's pretty significant, 
When they said Jesus was like Elijah, Elijah was very important to them. So, so they knew this about Jesus. He was significant. They weren't just dismissing Jesus. Everybody thought he was important. They were saying that Jesus is one of the good guys, right? When they said Elijah or John the Baptist, they're talking about the, the right religious people. And so he's significant. He's on the good side. They were saying he's religious because these other men were religious. They're saying he was a wise teacher and somehow he was a mouthpiece for God. So they were saying those things when they said, well, we don't know who he is, but maybe he's like Elijah or John the Baptist. Those are the things they were saying. And they were, listen to this, they were 90% right, but they were 100% wrong. Now, let me tell you how that works. See, you could say a lot of nice things about Jesus. You, you, you could say he was a great teacher, and he was. You could say he was, a, he, he was a moral man, and he was. You could say he's a good example for how to live, and you would be right. But if you say those things, and you're right about those things, but you don't say the one thing that matters, that he is the Lord, that he is the Savior, that he is the hope we have for the forgiveness of sins. If you don't say that, you'll find yourself 90% right, but 100% wrong. What counts is whether or not he's Lord. I, I wanted to know, you know what, what do people say about Jesus who are not followers of Jesus? So I did a lot of reading this week, and so one person I found, and, and you'll recognize this name, I, I saw that Gandhi had a lot to say about Jesus. You know who Gandhi is? Uh, so he was uh, you know, a man known to be a, a fair man and moral man and a sacrificial man, man of peace. And so Gandhi who represents many people in our world, Gandhi, he wrote about Jesus. And, and here's what he said. Jesus should be respected as a martyr. You know, he died for what he believed. Jesus should be revered because he was the embodiment of sacrifice. Jesus was a great teacher and a good example for how to live. But Jesus is not the savior. He is not the way of forgiveness for our sins. Well, that pretty much re represents what so many people think, especially in, in academia. And we have a lot of professors in our church, and so you'll know this. There, there are a lot of people who, who revere Jesus for some things. They are 90% right, but they are 100% wrong. So there was, um, there was, it was a, a man by the name of C.S. Lewis. You may have heard that name. He, he, he was an atheist, a professor at Oxford University, came to know Christ. Uh, later in his life, and then he wrote a bunch of books defending the faith and explaining the faith. Uh, you may know some of his books. He, he was the person that wrote Chronicles of Narnia, uh, Mere Christianity, uh, The Screwtape Letters. I don't know if you know those books. But, but he, wrote, he wrote something explaining this, and he explains it better than I can. And so this is more than I would ordinarily try to read in a, in a service like this. But let me just show you on the screen how he explained this. And so this is a very famous explanation. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. So he says, this is the foolish thing people say, that Jesus is a great teacher, but he's not God. Well, why is that foolish? Well, he goes on to answer. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the kind of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says that he is a poached egg. Now, C.S. Lewis was from, uh, 
He was from England, so he said poached egg. We'd say fried egg, okay? We're in Texas. So he, he's on the level with a, with a man who says he's a fried egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he was a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a friend nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. People say it's, it's the... It is the uh, fad thing to say, really, that Jesus was a great teacher. But if you look at what Jesus taught, that's just not possible if he's not also Lord. Because Jesus said, I have the authority to forgive sins. Jesus said, I existed before the creation of the world. Jesus said, I have the power to heal people and to resurrect people. Jesus said, I will bring myself back to life three days after I'm crucified. Jesus said, I will personally judge every person in the world and I am God. If anybody else said that, we would say that they were a crazy man. So either Jesus is a crazy man or he is Lord. There are no other options. So, so many people say that he was a good teacher, moral model uh, for a living, and they're 90% right, but they're 100% wrong. To say that Jesus Christ was a good spiritual teacher or a, or a moral man is as damning as saying that Jesus is crazy because it's 90% right and 100% wrong. So when we look at the question, who does the world say Jesus is, we learn something important. He is either Lord or he's nothing. Now, the second question, uh, who does Jesus say Jesus is? So, so we looked at what does the world say, but what does Jesus say? Well, we read this verse a moment ago. I'll read it again, verse 31, where Jesus just in one sentence explains his whole ministry. It says, then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things, to be rejected by the elders, chief priests, scribes, to be killed and rise after three days. Jesus says, I have come to suffer and to die and to be resurrected. Now, here's what I want you to see from that. Jesus didn't come to be a teacher. Jesus didn't come to model what it's like to live a moral life. Jesus came to die. Now, he was a great teacher, the greatest, and everything he said was true. Jesus did model how we should live a moral life, and, and he did so perfectly. But his purpose was not to come show us those things. His purpose was to come and die for our sins. And that explains some things that sometimes are confusing, such as the verse that I pointed to when we read a moment ago, verse 30, where it says, and he strictly warned them to tell no one about him. Why would Jesus tell his disciples, don't tell anybody I'm the Messiah? Because Jesus wasn't there to draw a crowd. There, there are so many times in scripture where Jesus is trying to get away from the crowd. Sometimes Jesus would do miracles and he would tell people not to tell anybody. Why would he do this? Well, because Jesus didn't come to teach. Jesus didn't come to draw a crowd. Jesus came to die. Listen to how Jesus said it uh, when he was on the cross 
uh, he had been there about five hours, five and a half hours, and they gave him something to drink. Uh, he, he wanted to speak, but his mouth was parched, as you can imagine, his lips and his tongue. So they gave him this uh, wine vinegar. L listen to how it says, John 19:30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And then he died. And what's he talking about? What was finished? Well, he was finished. He wasn't finished teaching. He wasn't finished doing miracles. There were still more things to teach. There were still more sick people to heal. No, but, but that's not why Jesus came. He had finished his task, which was to come and die for the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus' whole life was focused on the cross. Uh, you can see this even from the very earliest parts of his life recorded in the Bible when he was just uh, 12 years old and he goes to the uh, goes to the temple and you look back at what he said there he's already talking about uh, death and the cross and dying Jesus whole life was focused on the cross he came to pay the penalty for our sins I've sinned I deserve death my I can't fix that I can't overcome it I can't pay for it other than just to die eternally I am hopeless but Jesus came and he lived a sinless life and he died in my place so that my sins could be forgiven by his blood that was the whole purpose for Jesus's coming. So Jesus' life was a cross-focused life, which tells me, tells us that our faith, our religion, should be a cross-focused faith. Our faith in God should be focused on the cross. What happens so many times is our faith is just focused on us. Our, our faith just gets focused on the things that, that we do. And you can see it oftentimes in our prayers. We pray, okay, Lord, I'm on my knees. Would you fix this? Would you heal this? Would you help me on this test? Would you, would you give me a win? Would you, would you give me a boyfriend? Give me a girlfriend? Would you, I mean, we just pray for what we need. Would you fix the problems at work? And our faith, if we're not careful, gets focused almost entirely on us instead of being focused on Jesus. You know, we all have this tendency. And this is one of the things that makes life hard. We make our faith about us. We make our marriages about us. We make our church about us. We make our relationships. We make everything about us, and that causes so many problems. I'll show you this tendency. Here's how you can see it in yourself. If I were to show you a picture right now, a photograph, that had been taken of you and 20 of your friends. Maybe it was at a, some gathering or something and everybody said, you know, somebody said, stand over there, we'll get everybody's picture. Or maybe we stand up here and we take a picture of the, of the people in attendance at this service. And I show you the photograph. What's the first thing you look for in that photograph? You look for yourself. And why? Because we're, just, we're, we're most interested in us, right? At my previous church, we had this... Uh, some company had given us this big photograph, this piece of art, and, and it, it wasn't very interesting uh, to me, but it, but it was to many people. If you, if you stood away from it, uh, it formed the shape of something. And for the life of me, I can't remember what. It was some religious something. It was the empty tomb or the cross or something. And at a distance, it was that, it was that shape. But when you got close to it, you could see that it was made of a thousand little pictures of people in the church. 
And some company had some computer program. They took all these pictures and it, it arranged them in such a way that when you stood from a distance, it looked like one thing. But when you stood up close, you could see the pictures. Well, people in my church were probably way more fascinated by that than they should have been. So, so people would line up at it every Sunday and, and they, would, they would get close to it and they would start scanning it with their finger. Because there were a lot of pictures. What do you think they were looking for? They were looking for themselves. See, we just have this tendency to take everything that's around us and we make it about us. And we do this with our faith. And we say, uh, Lord, help me. And we should pray, Lord, help me. But that becomes the sum total. I'm a Christian because I need God to help me, to answer prayers, to fix something, to heal something, to help something. But Jesus, he was focused on the cross. And if we're going to have a cross-focused faith, our faith is going to look a little different. So, so let me show you. Let me show you three things, just very quickly, three things that will characterize your faith if it's a cross-focused faith. Number one, your faith will have confession as a major part, major part. So when you pray, if it's a cross-focused faith, if your faith is focused on the fact that Jesus came and the purpose of his coming was to die for our sins, for our forgiveness, so that we could be united with the Father, then when you pray, the first thing on your mind are your sins. Oh, Lord, thank you for the forgiveness through Jesus because I've messed up in the last couple of days. I've sinned. I've sinned this way and I've sinned that way. And I, and I confess that to you. See, if we have a cross-focused faith, one of, the, one of the biggest deals to us is our sin and the opportunity we have to confess that sin and experience the forgiveness of the Father. You know, King David in the Old Testament, he, he had sinned in a, in, in a really public way, in a really bad way. And, and so he goes before the Lord and he prays this prayer. It's a long prayer. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Uh, but let me just read to you a part of the prayer he prays. Because this, this is what our prayer ought to look like if we have a cross-focused faith. Psalm 51. If you want to go home and, and read the whole prayer, it's Psalm 51. Uh, but, but, but here's part of it. David says, for I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. David prays, oh, Father, I, I have sinned in my life. Against you and you alone I have sinned and I've done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence and you are blameless when you judge. Father, I am guilty of sin and I deserve to be punished. But purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. God, I deserve to be punished, but I know I have come to a God of mercy and grace. And David didn't know all about Jesus, but we do. I, I, I know because of the blood of Jesus shed on the cross, I can have forgiveness. And then he says this, the sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit, and you will not despise a broken and a humble heart, O oh God. See, if we have a cross-focused faith, we'll have a heart broken over our sin. And we will regularly confess our sin before the Lord. So the second part, if confession is the first characteristic of a Christ-focused faith, the second characteristic is worship. We will have a passion for worship. Coming and worshiping, corporately singing, being with, with our faith family and worshiping God. This isn't something that we just do on the side or we do because we can't think of something else to do on Sunday. No, when we have a cross-focused faith, we are so overwhelmed with the fact that, 
that we were sinners and we've sinned and rebelled against the holy God and we've done so on purpose, yet God loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us so that our sins could be forgiven, not because of what we do, but because of what he does. Isn't that amazing? And see, when we have a cross-focused faith, we are so amazed at that that we can't help but worship. We can't help but come and, 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 and tell the Lord just how wonderful he is. Um, sometimes when we have a, just a me-focused faith, uh, we, we're, we're reticent to worship. Worship almost seems um, a, a little bit pointless. Why, why come waste an hour singing songs? Uh, all I need is for God to fix something or to do something. But when we have a cross-focused faith, we can't not worship. Uh, I had a, a gentleman in a church I served in one time that, uh, that came and suggested that we just uh, cut out all of the singing in the, in the worship. He said, I just, and he, he was trying to pretend to be a spiritual man. He, he wasn't, but uh, he, he said, you know, I just love the word of God. I just think we ought to stand up there and teach the word of God the whole time. Well, listen, listen this pastor's all for teaching the word of God. If you'd stay here all day, I'd teach all day. I mean, I just, I love to do this. Uh, but to have a cross-focused faith means we wouldn't be able to stand to come together and not worship because we're just so overwhelmed with thankfulness. That's a cross-focused faith. And then the last characteristic of a cross-focused faith is that we'll be committed to evangelism. You see, when, when we understand uh, that it's all about the fact that Jesus died for the forgiveness of our sins, then everybody we see, we see through these lenses, is that person forgiven or is that person not forgiven? Does that person know Jesus or does that person not know Jesus? Because if, if this is the most important thing in the world, then, then when we see people, people we care about, we want to tell them about Jesus. We don't want to just give them our, you know, our, our pop psychology therapy or our relationship advice. We don't know much about that anyway, do we? We just want to give them Jesus. We just want to tell them about Jesus. When we have a cross-focused faith, we want to share the good news of Jesus. So we've seen who is Jesus from the perspective of the world, and we've seen who is Jesus from his own eyes and his own voice. But the, the most important question is, is the final one. Who do you say Jesus is? And so we see it's just very simple the way Jesus asked it. But you, he wanted to get their attention. You, 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 you. Who do you say that I am? And of course, Peter gave the right answer. You are, you are the Messiah. It's interesting, this passage, this, this historical account, it's recorded for us in the Gospel of Mark. That's where we read it this morning. But it's also found in uh, some of the other Gospels. And in some of the other Gospels, we have some added information. And in the Gospel of Matthew, it tells us that not only did, did it happen just like it's recorded in Mark, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Messiah. But then Jesus says to Peter after that, after Peter gets it right, Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, which means Peter, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven revealed this to you. Now, what does Jesus say? Peter gets it right, and Jesus says, well, you got it right, but not because you figured it out, Peter. You're not that smart, but because God put this on your heart. You know, when a person comes to Christ, when a person says Jesus is Lord with their whole life, it's not because they figured it out. It's not even because they've got all of their questions answered, as important as questions are. If you have questions 
Uh, we we want to help you find the answer. But people don't come to Christ because they get all their questions answered. Here's how you come to Christ. When you recognize that in your heart that God has convicted you of sin, you're convinced I am guilty of sin. There's no way I can overcome this. I, I owe God my life. The wages of sin is death. It, it starts when God, when you recognize God has convicted you of sin, convicted you of your guilt, and God has convinced you that your only hope is Jesus Christ. Your only hope is that somebody pay for your sins, and Jesus did that. And when you're convicted and convinced in your heart, then you respond and Jesus saves you and you become a child of God. See, who do you say that I am? This isn't an intellectual question, an academic question. It is that. And there are intellectual and academic answers and you should know those. But this is a question of the heart. Jesus said, Peter, you got it right, but not because you figured it out, but because Jesus, because the Father revealed it to you. And you know, when I, when I became a child of God, I can remember I, I, it, it was in my heart. I was convinced that I was guilty of sin. My only hope was Christ. And I was convinced he loved me and would forgive me if I called on him. And I did, and he changed my life. You know, there are not a lot of verses in the Bible about atheism because there just weren't a lot of atheists in, in, those, in those days. Uh, but there are a few verses, and, and I want to show you the main one. It's in Psalm chapter 14. It's just a short verse. I'm really just going to read half of it. Uh, but the verse says this. The fool says in his heart, there's no God. And we're going to leave that verse up a moment. Um, there's something interesting you should know. The, the Old Testament was written not in English, of course. There wasn't English back then. It was written in Hebrew. And, you know, when you translate from one language to the other, sometimes you have to add some words to make it more understandable uh, in the second language, in the new language. And th that happened in this verse. Now, you can tell when that's happened. When you read your Bible, you'll notice that occasionally you come across a word that's, uh, that's italics. It's italicized. And, and maybe you've wondered, why, why every once in a while do I come across a word that's, that's italicized and I, I, don't, I don't see any reason why? I'll tell you why. The words that are in italics, that means those have been added. They weren't a part of the original. They were added not to change the meaning of the verse, but just to make it more readable. But sometimes when they do that, it disguises, I think, the real intent of the verse. And this is an example. You know how this reads in Hebrew? The fool says in his heart, no God. There's no is there or there there in the Hebrew. It just says the fool says in his heart, no God. Here's, here's what it says in the Hebrew. The fool says in his heart, no God for me. No God for me. See, the difference between someone who follows God and someone who doesn't follow God is not some intellectual pursuit. It's not that one person's got his questions answered and the other one doesn't. It's that one person responds to what he knows in his heart. He's been convicted and convinced. And the other one chooses not to. It's a choice that we make. Who do you say that I am? Jesus says that to each of us. And we must make a choice of whether we will embrace what God has revealed and made real in our heart. How do we do that? Well, we believe that Jesus died on the cross. And he did so to pay the penalty for our sins. And we surrender our lives to him. And we don't have to know all the answers, but that's where it begins. And from there,
God changes our lives. Let me ask you to bow your head and close your eyes for just a moment. So I'm, I, I want to challenge you in a couple of ways. If you know Christ as your Savior, I want to challenge you to have a cross-focused faith. Not a, not a me faith, but a Jesus faith. Will you, will you talk to the Lord as we sing, what would it look like for my faith to be more cross-focused? But if you don't know Christ as your Savior, the question for you is the same as the question for Peter. Who do you say that I am? And the same God that convicted and convinced Peter, I trust will convict and convince you. Choice is in your hands. Father, I remember when you saved me, when you forgave me, when you adopted me into your family. I can remember saying, I know I'm guilty of sin. I know I can never overcome this on my own. I need somebody to help. I need somebody to pay for my sins. And I believe Jesus has done that. And so I accept that, I trust that, and I just surrender my life to you. I, I don't know, Father, I can remember saying, I don't know, Father, even what all that means. But I'll tell you now, I surrender. Father, I'm thankful that you changed my life and you're still changing it. There's a lot of changes still needed. And I pray that you'll do the same for people today. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to sing. Listen, if you would like to make a decision or talk to somebody about a decision today, uh, there will be some ministers standing here at the front while we sing.